Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. I don't know if you recognize the song, it's Give Me uh, Jesus, and uh, I love it when Mickey plays violin. He is still taking lessons from me um, <coughs> in making coffee, not in playing violin for sure. Um, we're starting a series today, and on your notes it's going to be entitled Reconstructing Your Faith. What's not on there is the title of this specific message, which is The First Step. So Reconstructing Your Faith, The First Step today. Last week we finished the conversation um, somewhat intensely on the issue of gathering and the importance of gathering as a church. And I particularly was emphasizing that there's a need, that we need to be here. And one of the passages of scriptures, of course, that's relevant is in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And so I want to expand a bit on this. Um, but that's not where we're going to finish. So stay and pay close attention. And I want to begin with this statement. The first step in solving any problem is recognizing that there is one. first step in solving any problem is recognizing that there is one. There was a study that I came across recently that um, expands on last week. This study was done by, from what I can understand, an organization or group that is in no way sympathetic to Christianity. It's from uh, an entity called the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University, and their goal is to examine and encourage human flourishing across different scientific um, disciplines. And in this article, the director of this, and I think his associate director, um, found several specific things related to church participation and found that while a number of people were dropping off from active participation in a fellowship and in actual services, um, that rarely was it associated with what you would have thought, the scandals or um, things of this nature. In fact, they said this, whether or not outrage is involved, the most common experience of Christians who don't go to church seems to be less a deliberate choice and more a substitution of habits. Put differently, a large share of Christians are opting to go it alone, moving their faith into quarters so private that even the church is not allowed in. Some of the substitution, let's touch on for a moment. Um, A number of friends of mine over the years have talked to me about how um, sports programs and other things, whether it's school or otherwise, increasingly cut in on Sunday engagement. And we've commented how this never would have been the case years back. Years back, if some program had been held on a Sunday, they wouldn't do it because they know no one would be there to attend. But as the society has fallen more and more away from the idea of faith and, and following uh, things of Scripture, those things are now competing increasingly. Whether it's that or other items, it's a substitution of habits 
rather than a deliberate choice. It goes on and says, obviously this trend is uh, having an impact, but it goes on and says, um, less obvious until recent, it's also harming the well-being of those who have stopped attending. A sizable body of research developed over the last couple of decades um, suggests that religious participation strongly promotes health and wellness. Part of this is drawn, there's a number of studies, one from a, what's called the Nurses' Health Study, more than 70,000 participants. Medical workers who said they attended religious ser- services frequently, and given, they said parenthetically, America's religious composition, composition, those were largely in Christian churches of one stripe or another. They were 29% less likely to become depressed, about 50% less likely to divorce, and five times less likely to commit suicide than those who never attended. And then perhaps they said the most striking finding of all healthcare professionals who attended services weekly were 33% less likely to die during a 16-year follow-up period than the people who never attended. Those effects were big enough to, to have a real impact on them. Those of you who are parents, the study also said a religious upbringing also profoundly affects lifelong health and well-being. They found that regular service, they says we found regular service attendance helps children from the big three dangers of adolescence, depression, substance abuse, and premature sexual activity. People who attended church as children are also more likely to grow up happy, to be forgiving, to have a sense of mission and purpose, and to volunteer. Again, this is coming from a group based at Harvard University. Um, went on and said that uh, they found that those who attend services have far fewer deaths of despair, quote-unquote, deaths by suicide, drug overdose, or alcohol, than people who never attended services, reducing those deaths by, catch this, 68% for women. Ladies, you really need to be in church. <clears throat> for guys, 33%. And then it says this, basically, a number of well, of large, well-designed research studies have found that religious service attendance is associated with greater longevity, less depression, less suicide, less smoking, less substance abuse, better cancer and cardiovascular disease survival, less divorce, greater social support, greater meaning in life, greater life satisfaction, more volunteering, and greater civic engagement, and less depression for Lions fans in the post-servant. Um, so they went on to say this, all the stuff that kind of went through. There was a few more di- points on this. There was a survey by a Christian group, Barna Group, that these guys cited in their work um, that about a third of practicing Christians have stopped joining corporate worship altogether during the pandemic. And that group reported higher levels of anxiety and depression than those who are still worshiping in some fashion. You can say what you want to in regards to her governor. I'm not political on this one way or the other. But she did not attempt to shut down the churches at all during this season of time. And for that, I thank her. It allowed us the option of deciding ourselves how and when and what we would operate with. Finally, goes on to say this. Moreover, it isn't clear to what extent joining a religious community actually improves the health and well-being of people who join only to promote their health and well-being. But there are reasons to suspect the benefits will not be as striking. Some of you here and think so far that I'm just sitting here making a whole pitch as to why you should be part of the church, especially the live stream audience who we know are halfway in hell anyways, okay? But, and I say that carefully. The reality is there are those on live stream who need to be there. There are good reasons for them to be there. 
they have health issues, they have travel issues, there are other things that are in case. And so there's a segment of the live stream that this message in the sense of any gilding at all or condemnation or commission doesn't apply whatsoever. In fact, those individuals would like to be here with you right now. Now there's another segment of them that we'll talk about at some other time. Those are the ones who are using it as a channel issue or as a surfing issue or as just a voyeurism or just a way to feel good about themselves in one way or another. That's another subject. Consider an analogy, he says here. Marriage benefits spouses in many ways, but does so most strongly when spouses love and enjoy one another for their own sake. So too, perhaps, with religion, he said. In other words, if you're attending a church strictly for the idea of the health benefits, what you're going to receive out of it, it's not necessarily going to have the same impact. When I graduated from high school, I had a scholarship to Michigan State University. My parents um, were both Michigan State grads, and um, it looked like it was going to be a, a thing that I would orient to. I'd lived in Lansing as a kid. I think my parents were somewhat concerned about me, so they said, look, we'll pay for the first year of college if you'll pick a Christian college. So um, I thought, okay, I had a cousin of mine who um, had survived a Christian college in Florida, and I thought, well, Florida's not too bad. You wake up in the morning and try to decide which coast you're going to go to, you know. And so I, I attended school there and then transferred eventually to a school in Missouri uh, where I met my wife. It was at the school in Missouri, a Christian college again, that, um, that I encountered a young woman who was in my dormitory. We had a, a mixed dorm. And um, she was someone who was very vocal in our conversations that she was not a Christian. But she had purposely chosen to go to a Christian college. And in the conversation, it became clear. She said, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe anything you believe. Then why did you come to a Christian school? Because I, I like the values. I feel safer. And I just want to hang out in this kind of environment. And that was the reason why she was in college. And that really struck me at the time. It caught me that someone was part of the community but didn't really participate in what was the core of the community. It was the first encounter I think I'd had of a pure consumeristic mindset. This is the same thing that is here today. That there are those of us that gather, whether it's by the live stream or whether it's present here, where there is no heart commitment, there is no recognition of the truth of the gospel. It's strictly an issue of what I can receive or what I can get or how I matter in the process. Now, to be sure, faith in the gospel requires or, or offers, I should say, uh, as one person puts it, equipment for living. There's a natural product of right thinking that itself is a natural product of, of the doctrinal teaching that's offered in this. But increasingly, people enter into the church strictly defined it as tools for their personal fulfillment, or perhaps swayed by the study that I just read, which is a great study and persuasive and important for us perhaps to have relevance to. But if those are the reasons why we're present, then we're missing the core of what is in fact the gospel. And also, all the more so in a society today that doesn't even accept truth as anything real to begin with. C.S. Lewis made the comment, quote, one of the great difficulties is to keep before the audience's mind the question of truth. They always think that you are recommending Christianity not because it is true, but because it is good. Not because it is true, but because it is good. Is this where you're at? 
that, that there's a good culture or there's a good ideas or there's concepts of how I should live my life out. It's, it's good, but you never really grapple with the issue of whether it's true. There's a massive difference between those two things. If it's a good thing is one thing, but if it's truth, then it penetrates to my bones. It has impact upon me. I cease to become a consumer or a spectator. It transforms how I think, how I act. It's a rock upon which I can live and stand upon. The phrase today that is becoming popular in some circles is the phrase deconstructing your faith. And while it's been mostly a function of, of, of a younger generational portion of what has been the church, oftentimes those who are worship leaders and have a platform, and so when they decide that they are no longer a follower of Christ, or they decide they are now in doubt as to any of the things that they had sung about and led people in worship for years, it's had a ripple effect across the church. I think some of this is some of the side effect of, of what I think is a Americanism within the church in America, we worship youth and young. And, and it's crept in the church so much today that if you look at almost any music video that's out there today that's representing even the church, you'll find almost everyone on that stage is 20-somethings. And so we have that same thing. And then these individuals who, who have had really no multi-generational mentorship or encouragement or strengthening, they find themselves floundering in the midst of things. Now, it's not just a function of the young. It's happened throughout time and space and through all generations. It's just these platforms have become more pronounced and more obvious in this time. And so these individuals question increasingly what was true. It's been good, but is it really true? And, and so they've abandoned the rock upon which they've stood for so long and built their lives, and increasingly they're finding themselves in the sand. Where does this stand within us as believers? One of the great difficulties is to keep before the audience's mind the question of truth. Who says they always think you're recommending Christianity not because it's true, but because it is good. And in the discussion, they will at every moment try to escape from the issue, true or false, into stuff about a good society or morals, or let's discuss the income of bishops or the Spanish Inquisition. You have to keep forcing them back again to the real point. Is this stuff true? If it's good, then it's in competition with a lot of other good things. But if it's true, Francis Schaeffer, another Christian intellectual of years past, agreed with Lewis. He made this statement. As we get ready to tell the person God's answers to his or her need, we must make sure that the individual understands that we are talking about real truth. Not about something vaguely religious which seems to work psychologically. We must make sure that he understands that we are talking about real guilt before God. And we're not offering him merely relief for his guilt feelings. It's not strictly therapy. We must make sure that he or she understands that we are talking to him or her about history and the death of Christ that was not just an ideal or a symbol, but in fact of space and time. And until he or she understands the importance of these things, he or she is not ready to become a Christian. This whole concept of, of the gospel of Christ, of truth, and, and the exclusivity that is claimed within Scripture is so wide open for debate today. 
but it's been going on for decades. I want to read you quickly a, a, a transcript, a portion of one of an old television show. How many of you recall Phil Donahue? A few of you do. The guy was a well, a little white to the, quite, quite to the left. He was actually kind of the starter in some ways of all the, the wacky Maury Povich and all those other gotcha weird shows that would come out about your mother's, uncle's, kid's, child, brother's, whatever, you know. Um, but he had a little more intellectual. They tried to deal with issues, but it was always with this gotcha, kind of aggressive, kind of conflictual attitude and approach. In this particular um, uh, program, his guests were a rabbi, Botich, who was author of Judaism for Everyone, Dr. Albert Moeller, who was the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville at the time, and Dr. Michael Brown, who was um, a, a Jewish man who had become a, a Christian and a professor. He's president of Israel, the church, and the nation's ministries. And so Donahue starts off with Moeller, the Southern Baptist guy. He says, do you believe Jews can go to heaven? As he's got a Jewish man and a Jewish man who's become a Christian next to him. Moeller said this, Southern Baptists with other Christians believe that all persons can go to heaven who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is no discrimination on the basis of ethnic or racial or national issues. Donahue You cannot possibly look a person in the eye and say, quote, if you don't come to Jesus, if you don't change your faith, you're not going to heaven. Reeks of prejudice and also stirs the soul to evil behavior, in my opinion. Botich, the rabbi, Reverend Moeller, however intelligent a scholar may be, is a spiritual Neanderthal with repulsive, revolting views. Donahue, I'll respect your religion, Reverend Moeller, if you respect mine, but please don't tell me that you know what's good for me. There's an arrogance to that. Moeller, well, all I know is that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, and that all who are there come by his grace and mercy alone. There's nothing in us to merit salvation, and so humility has to be the Christian posture. Donahue, there's nothing humble about telling me I'm not going to heaven if I don't believe in Jesus. That's not humility. That's arrogance. And Moeller, and this is where I'll close with this segment, it would be arrogance if this were our message. But if that is what the Son of God said himself, if that is the truth, then it would be hateful and it would be intolerant not to tell you what we believe to be the truth. I can't compel anyone to believe in Christ, but I do have the responsibility with gladness and joy to share the good news of the gospel. That show aired 20 years ago. And the hostility and the confusion that was present even then has only gone up by 1,000 plus percent in the time that we are in now. This antagonism, this hostility, this question as to whether these things are in fact true. Going to church, being here has significant health benefits. That's what we hear and that's what we read. There's a certain thing that can be a part of it. But the church itself is not salvation. It can introduce to the one who can save our souls, but it is not itself salvation. So if we join the church or we begin to attend in the flesh strictly for the benefits that we glean from it, this consumerist mindset, this thing that tries to take hold of what can, we're no different than the girl that I knew in college We take hold of certain things, but we miss the eternal. 
I do not want that for you, and I do not believe that that is what God wants for you. We have, in fact, been indoctrinated by our culture. As I said, it's been going on for decades that there is no absolute truth, that there is no exclusivity, that all truths are equal, that all things are the same. And so we gather here maybe just because we want to be good and learn more or take these things hold. But if truth is not true, if it doesn't stand at the center of a gathering such as this, if it's strictly a social music festival event, then it is meaningless at the core. There is a scripture that you saw today, but you probably did not penetrate into your mind if you were in this place today. You would walk past it every time you enter in this place. It is engraved in the cement at both entrances as you walk in the door. And while it may have been faded somewhat by the coloration of time, we purposely put it there so we would never lose our way. It's John chapter 14, verse 6. I include verse 7 today. It's where Jesus says, and Jesus answered, I am the way and a truth. Thank you for reacting to that. First service, I had to beat the heck out of those guys. I am the way and truth. The truth. And the life. No one. How about Fred? No one. How about, how about Angela? No, no one. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. But Jesus makes the statement, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If this is not real, then Jesus Christ was an idiot. He was a liar. He was some kind of freak that we should not pay whatsoever attention to or have any consideration of whatsoever. But if it's true, if it's not just good, he's a good guy, but if this is true, what is the impact then? Does it change because our circumstances change? Because a pandemic hits us or we've lost a loved one or our job has been wiped out or our health has been challenged? Does that change the truth? No. And it doesn't stop there. This goes on. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples have just healed someone and everyone's freaked out about it. And, and they say, look, at this guy that's healed, it's not the church that did this. It's not us as apostles that did this. It says this, salvation is found in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which you must be saved. It's the name of Christ who you crucified that saved this guy and restored him. Salvation is found in no one else. If you go and watch the football game today, it's very possible at some point in time you're going to see John 3.16 pop up. This passage has popped up at so many football games, people don't even know in our society that it's actually from the Bible. They think it's a football thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. What motivated him? He loved you. He loved me. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why? Because Romans chapter 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everyone has sinned. 
Parents, we have kids. We know this is true. We didn't have to teach those kids how to sin. They learned that real. They knew that from the start. We have to teach them how to be good. Don't beat up your brother. Don't pull your sister's ponytails. But, but, but we didn't have to teach them the other part. We're born with this. The wages of sin is death, it says. But the free gift is through Christ Jesus. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. This is either true or it's not. If it's not, then we're free to do whatever we want to. And, and if we remove government, and if we remove laws, and we remove police and all their structures, we will kill each other in a heartbeat because that's who we are. The law and the government and the police, all those things are there to structure things because we know the heart of man is ultimately dark. But all those things can do is control our externals. They cannot transform our heart. Only the grace of God through Jesus Christ can do that. And if these things are not just good in competition with many other good things that I can engage with or substitute for, if it's in fact truth, then this changes everything. And what that means then is whatever comes, whether it's illness, whether it's loss, whether it's death itself, whatever comes This is where I stand. It's a rock I can stand upon, that I can build upon. This is where I stand. There are three, at least, groups that I speak to today. There are those, again, from the live stream that that you you need to be where you're at, and, and there's grace for you. In fact, we know you want to be here with us, and we pray for you. There are those of you that are returning daily and you're welcome and that's good, all is good. But there's another section of you. There's a section of you that have substituted things. There's a section of you that, that, that have, have, have allowed yourself into lapse into some beyond consumerism. I don't know if this will translate. When I was in college, we had these people that we had a lobby on the second floor of our place, and, and it was a social place where everyone would gather, the, the young people and stuff, our, 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 as students, we'd gather a lot of times. And, and if you gathered there too much, um, you forgot your studies. It was so easy just to step down off one of the halls and, and hang out with a friend or talk to a girl or do whatever you were going to be doing there and stuff like that or watch a television show or whatever the case, play a game of euchre or whatever the case was. And we had these people that we called lobby lizards. Lobby lizards had a one-semester lifespan. Two tops. Because they spent their life in the lobby socializing and hanging out and partying the whole time. And they never got to their studies and they lasted one semester and they were out. And please, please, please hear my heart on this. Some of you who are in live streaming, you are lobby lizards and you're not going to last. If that's truly where you're at, if it's not a matter of other needs and issues, you need to understand that if these things are truth, that there's something about gathering that is that is essential to your faith. Now, there's a bunch of people in the room here that are really happy right now because they think you're getting picked on. They're, they're feeling so righteous. They're feeling so righteous. They cheered earlier when I kind of burned you guys because they're sitting here going, but we're here. We're participating. We're the good kids. God loves us. So let's talk about that for a minute. You're here. You're gathered. But are you participating 
Are you engaged? When, when there's something as simple as worship, do you know that there are people on live stream right now of our people that would, that would give anything if they could just be here in the worship of the saints and hearing the music and the pounding of the drums and the, 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 they, they would do anything to be here and you treat it so casually. Did we learn nothing from being limited in the pandemic that these things are to be held on to, delighted in, that there's a participation Some of you have never, and and I say this lovingly, you have never, ever lifted your hands in worship. We just sang a song. It wasn't designed that way. I'm just going off it, okay? I lift my hands up and I pray. And and some of us could and some of us didn't. And that's fine. There's reasons why. So I'm not judging on that. Some of us have, have, we have maybe shoulder issues. I don't know, whatever. (laughs) Clapping. Oh, let's all clap together. And and like 30.7% clap and about 70% of us don't. And I know some of us have issues. We can't do that. Okay? But not 70% of you. Okay? Now, some of it's because we're coming here, and this is where we want to be encouraged and lifted up, and we need to be quiet. And I'm that way. There'll be times you'll see, I'm not going to lift my hands up either. There'll be times that I'm, I'm deep in thought or deep in prayer. So this is to sit here, and, 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 and next week, look around and say, oh, I, that person didn't clap, or that person didn't lift their hands, and God doesn't love them, but they love me. No. There's an issue of heart and mind that goes way beyond what we do physically. But to what degree do you participate in worship? There are those who would love to be a part of that. And if you're participating in worship, are you participating in serving? The gifts, the talents that we've been given, are we using those? There are those who have served so diligently that can't be for right now. And they would love just to be able to sit before some children and teach them. Work with the young people. Sing a song or offer their instruments or whatever they might have. So yes, there are those who, on the live stream, and they're misusing it. There are those of us that are here, but we're not participating in a way that we could. And, and let, me, let me say to both of those, but especially the first, but to both of those, there's this one scene in, in the Chronicles of Narnia that just shreds me, and it's, it's, it's quickly moved past. If you don't know the book series, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, an analogy of Christ. Aslan is this lion, the son of the emperor across the sea, who rules over this land of talking animals and dwarfs and all this other stuff. And, and uh, he was a friend of Tolkien, Lewis was. And uh, um, all these wonderful things happen from children in our world that come over. And it starts particularly with four children, two brothers and two sisters, And as they win battles and do everything else, and Aslan's actually sacrificed at one point in time for a traitor and then is resurrected again and greater than ever. And so it's a great analogy. But the very last in the book series is entitled The Last Battle. The last king of Narnia has to fight a desperate battle against desperate odds. And while he loses at the end, and and, and he dies, if you will, he he ends up in this place suddenly where, where all the kings and queens from the past are present, and Aslan is present, and they're about to enter up into heaven. And as he's sitting here and having this conversation, and there's dwarfs in the corner who can't comprehend what's happening, um, he notices the kings and queens are there, and he says, but, but there were two queens and two kings. Where is Queen Susan? And the other brother, the eldest, who's the high king, and, and says, Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. And the other girl, Lucy, the sister, says she's caught up with the things basically of this world. She's preoccupied with that. She thinks this is all fantasy anymore, and we should all grow up and let it go. And so she's no longer a friend of Narnia. There are those of us 
who have gathered or not. We slowly let substitute and separation settle in and lose sight of the truth, and we fall away. And I speak to you today. There's those of us who gather, yet we are passive and not participating. And I would speak to you today as well, too. But there's a third group that's even more important than anything else in this room right now. See, there's a big difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. I know about Billy Graham, but I never met him. I don't know him. I know about Matthew Stafford. I know some of his stats. I know some of his things, but I don't know him. Do you know about Jesus, or do you know him and who he is? You see, in Acts chapter 2, the church is formed. And people dwell on certain passages. One of the passages I've seen people dwell on is, is the 42nd one. You know, in the beginning as the Holy Spirit comes and, and lights up the church and at the back end they're all gathered together and they're in a services and, and listening and t- being taught and in a fellowship together and people focus on that one alone. And they get the fellowship and the community right. But, but they lose track of something else. Some others like to focus on the first part. The Holy Spirit comes and the empowering of that. And they focus on the gifts and all the things that go with that. And they get lit up over that. And I've seen that too. But what gets forgotten about is, is what linked those items together. What really made the church the church. Because Peter, after empowered by the Holy Spirit, begins to speak. Begins to preach to the crowd that's gathered around that have come for their formal worship, from which God is really absent. And he comes and he's speaking to them, and he talks about Jesus Christ. He just pounds home the issue of Jesus Christ. And then they're hit by this so hard that it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you. The fellowship of the church is so significant. We, we need it. It has benefits for us. But it means nothing if we are not in relationship with God. The power of the Holy Spirit is significant. It's important. But if we're not letting that work through us in worship and in gifts and in service, then it means nothing in the process of that. But here's the real thing. If you're here because of any of those things, if you're here just because you want to be surrounded by these things or because your parents attended here or because you want something for your children, whatever the case may be, if, you're, if, if there's not a time in your life when you have been cut to the heart by the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ, then you are in serious, serious threat. The first step in solving any problem is recognizing that there is one. So for those, whether you gather or not, but you've slowly let substitutes and separations settle in that you've lost sight of the truth and you're falling away, I would speak to you today. And for those of us that are gathered, yet we are still passive and not participating and not growing and not moving on or have other agendas, I would speak to you today. But this third group, particularly, that doesn't even recognize that they're sinned, that don't even recognize that they need to repent, that have never had a moment of brokenness, never had a moment of being cut to the heart. To you particularly, I would say the first step 
solving any problem is to recognize that there is one. And so now I give you my text for the day. Now. Isaiah chapter 1, 18. Come now. Come now, God calls. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Let's talk. Let's engage. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The first step in solving any problem is to recognize there is one. So this morning, whether you're on the live stream, and for those of you who have to struggle with the distance of that, I pray for you. I truly do. And for those of you who are letting it cause you to drift further away, I challenge you. But for those of us gathered here, and for all of us in whatever medium we're at, I would ask you, where are you at as far as the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? To what degree has it cut your heart? There's an imagery, scripture used of circumcision, of cutting away certain things so that we can be marked and become more of who he wants us to be. And so this morning hour, as a church, as we reconstruct our faith, after two years of being pummeled, we need to take this step first. So I'm going to ask if you would please close your eyes and bow your heads with me today, wherever you're at. I'm going to ask very quickly this. First of all, is there anyone here in this gathering here who this morning you feel the Holy Spirit just clutching at you? You know that you've never been cut to the heart. You've been casual at best. Maybe I never even have made or crossed over that line, but this morning in this time and place, in this moment of time, you recognize that you are a sinful person. You recognize that you are in need of salvation. And something stirs in your heart, and you know that it's not just a good thing, but it's the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for your sin. And that faith in that will save you, literally from hell. If that's you this morning, and you want to make that commitment, I'm going to ask quickly, with no one looking around, just raise your hand quickly. I want to pray with you. Okay? Others. Just quickly. Yeah. All right. Anyone else in the balcony right now, real quick? Yep. Anybody else, quickly? All right. Next question I want to ask is simply this You've been following Christ, but you recognize that you've either been drifting away and and risk becoming a Susan, no longer a friend of heaven, no longer a friend of God. Or you've been here, but you're not participating. You recognize you just crossed the line, but you've just not really engaged deeply at all. And this morning, not me, but the words of God are convicting you in some fashion that you need to repent of that lack of participation. You need to repent of that drift, that you want to draw near to God one more time again. If that's you, quickly, no one looking around, just raise your hand before God. Raise your hand up, and let's pray together. Okay? Father, we come before you now as your people. Lord, I pray for every individual who raised their hand for salvation this morning that, Lord, you have penetrated their heart with your truth. 
There's not been any rhetorical tricks or, or methods used. It's your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that as they repent of, of their sin today, as they accept you as Savior and Lord, that you'd give them a rock to stand upon that would never fail them, Lord, no matter what the cost or situation. And Lord, for those of us in this season that have drifted, for those of us who've been passive and not participated, for those of us who've taken for granted the gathering of the fellowship of believers, Lord, and our role in that, Lord, as we repent of that now, I pray not that we draw near, but that you would place a fire within individuals to serve, to engage, to be your church and be a safe haven for others who would come to know you. And to that end this morning, we come to you. This is just the first step. We're going to continue on next week about reconstructing our faith, but if you have nothing else, take from this day the passage from Isaiah and meditate on it. Come, let us reason together. Come, Talk to God over these next couple of days. Talk about your participation. Talk about your heart condition. Talk about your gifts and your talents. Talk to Him. And lay it down. Father, I thank You for Your grace. And Lord, as difficult as times have been, I thank You for Your church. I thank You, Lord, that we can stand together and worship. And Lord, I pray right now for members of ours who cannot be here in person. I pray right now, God, that they would feel your grace upon them, that they would know that they are not forgotten, that they are loved and valued. So God, we give you thanks today for the truth of your salvation. Continue to guide us, we pray, Lord. Lead us as your church as we walk humbly in faith after you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And the church said, Amen.